not wearing my Tetsuo shirt, John. How disappointing. I'll get over it. I don't think you will. If I'm being honest, I don't think you will. Somehow we'll get through this episode without it. Without my Hiroku the Goblin hat. You ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Chris, there are some filmmakers who you can't say what their best film is. They're like Fassbender. Their their filmography, their artwork is like a house. You know, every single thing has a function. Everything is connected. Everything makes up one giant artwork. And I think Shinya Tsukamoto is one of those artists. And the film that we're talking about today on the Pink Smoke podcast, A Snake in June. Sorry, I would say A Snake in June. It's A Snake of June. The Snake of June is a I movie like I always think of as like his June. best. How about you? <laughs> I like a Gershwin tune. Sorry, go on. I always just think of that like that. That might be his best film. <laughs> you know, I kind of like counterintuitively think like I want to call it his best film. It's certainly the one that I go back to and revisit the most yeah. often. It's one that seems like a real turning point in his career. Obviously, it's like a very vital film in his filmography it really feels kind of like if his if if literally and we're gonna to have to use like a body metaphor i think for a Sukamoto, <laughs> it would be like the heart of his filmography in a lot of ways yeah Do you agree with that yeah i think when you were talking about the metaphor of the of the house of a building with everything function i think that this film does have it's a keystone feel to it it's the keystone in the archway you built and if you took it out i'm not sure his filmography collapses but it definitely having it in there gives it a shape and a form that makes it feel intelligible to me in some way and i'd suggested doing this movie for the the reason i think for that we're talking about is it's so hard to pick a favorite by him even though he's one of my favorite filmmakers Mm -hmm. um but this movie i think is is the best probably and it doesn't get talked about at all it's somehow overlooked. Like, I feel like I hear people talk about Hiroku the Goblet more than I hear people talk about this movie. And it's such an essential film for him. You know, it kind of, if it, if it's not this movie that's like the keystone and the best one in the beating heart, then it has to be Tetsuo, right? And I think that for a lot of people, it's very legitimately Tetsuo. Um, but I think that speaks to what this film is is that it gives you the feeling this is the somehow more essential than Tetsuo when you look at what his work is and what he's done, that this is somehow, Tetsudo is like the iron mangled body. This is like the beating heart of what he is as a filmmaker. Absolutely, I agree. You know, he's compared to David Lynch a lot. And that's what makes it even weird that Snake of June doesn't get more talked about because I think of Tetsuo as like his eraser head, like his calling card, like here I am, this is what I'm about. This is like... Yeah. By just like stabbing this fucking sword straight into the heart of cinema, you yeah. know, it's his arrival. And I think of this one as like his blue velvet, but like it doesn't get looked at like that. And some reasons I guess you could point to, like, you know, maybe, I mean, it's a very short film. Maybe that has something to do with it. Like there's something about it that's weirdly slight, even though it's there's so much packed into this movie. It almost has kind of a modest sort of thing. I mean, it has a very small cast. Many of his movies do. But it just is a movie that doesn't charge into your soul the way that, you know, something like Tetsuo does yeah. compared to his other films. It just has like a more quiet sort of 
atmosphere to it, even while it's sort of his wildest film in, in, in more yeah. ways than one. Yeah, I'd actually compare it to, to Mulholland Drive. I think it's his Mulholland Drive. It's sort of the the impact statement. It's sort of the that this is this is really what I'm about. And you and I are not huge Mulholland Drive fans, which is why I know you picked Blue Velvet instead of Mulholland Drive. But it has that same sort of like this this is the the there is none more film that's Lynchian, quote unquote, than Mulholland Drive, I don't think. And I think that there's none more film that's that's Sukamodian than than Snake of June. Um uh, but yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I, I think also that and what we'll get into, the, the sexual politics of it are very hard to parse in some way. And I think people don't want to touch it for that reason as well, that it's about bodies, male and female bodies, sort of Cronenbergian decay and our relationship to our bodies being a burden on us and the mind body split and specifically about a woman's relationship to her sexuality and how in women, the gulf between mind and body is so much greater than it is in men, I think is one of its films that, that women's bodies are much harder on them than men's bodies are on them, you know, through all of the ways you can think of through the, the way that traditionally, especially in a place like Japan, their desires called on to be repressed that they, you know, from breast cancer to menstruation to, you know, to body hair that they're told to remove all of these things, women's bodies are are a much bigger burden than men's bodies. And so the split between your mind, your inner self, your desire, your thoughts and your body and what your body is forcing you to be and forcing you to do, it's a really big split in the way that this movie looks at it and tries to reconcile that split um, I is is intentionally provocative, is intentionally controversial, you know, that there's a transgressive actor who's going to try and destroy her and annihilate her, uh, try to annihilate that split, but forcefully. It's it's a movie about sexual aggression and sexual assault and blackmail and, um, and humiliation and all of that tied to uh, the freeing aspects of it, you know, that he does try to annihilate that mind-body split in her and he's successful. And I don't think a lot of people necessarily want to touch a movie in which like the stalker rapist helps her find her true self. Although he's not, he's not a rapist. He's a fetishist. Um, well, 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 over that sort of <laughs> definition of what it, what it is. I just mean, this is not, this movie is not irreversible. Yeah. This movie is, is a different depiction of that kind of difficult subject matter. And one thing that the, the there's a just an interview with them that before we get into it and we talk about the plot that I always think about when I think about this um, this movie, uh, there's an interview with them and just the quote to sort of set it up to feel like where he was at with it, um, which is I always wanted to make a film in which every image is infused with eroticism, a totally erotic film. Even Tetsuo I made with that idea in mind. I've been interested in filming The Naked Body for a long time. Maybe in the case of a pornographic film, people imagine that it exploits the image of the female body. But my original intention was to transcend the difference between the male and female body. The photography of Robert Maplethorpe was one of my sources of inspiration for this. Making the film 15 years later, those original ideas have changed. Now the eroticism does arise more from the image of the naked female body after all. Um, and then the interviewer asked, uh, 
pictures also express a violent aspect of human body. Was this what inspired you? And he says, maybe that's his only answer to that. Maybe that could be <laughs> part of it. And I think that that's very telling about Tsukamoto is that he he's excessively, insanely, shockingly violent filmmaker but he himself doesn't seem interested in violence. He's not like a wakamatsu who's using violence to shock people. He's not like an exploitation, you know, like Tokyo Gore police. The violence, I think, is a natural occurrence in his films out of what he's interested in thematically, that there's violent, that these are violent things happening in his movies emotionally, intellectually, philosophically. So the violence is a natural outpouring from it the violence expresses itself very naturally from the material which is what i think separates him so much from so many other exploitation directors who are it's even hard to think of him as being like you know tokyo gore extremity like belonging in that category you know as much as i admire miyake and early miyake he ain't that that's not what he's doing even though his movies are frequently as violent or more violent than something like ishii the killer audition i don't think that's who he is i don't think that that he's trying to find the most shocking thing i think he's trying to express his ideas and the overwhelming tidal wave of emotional violence expresses itself in imagistic violence this sort of erotic tidal wave comes out as like of course if you love a woman she's going to pummel your face with a sledgehammer that's what love is you know that's how it <laughs> feels you know absolutely and i mean this is probably what gave me more anxiety recording this episode than anything like the idea they have to go in and talk about a movie that, you know, at one point talks about victimization, sexual victimization specifically, which also <laughs> kind of crosses over with liberation in, you know, yeah. a very unique way. I think that's sort of where the comparison of Blue Velvet kind of becomes significant when you think about that movie and the controversy of what victimization is, what Dorothy Valens has become, you know, and the... The fact that Kyle McLaughlin's character is just as, you know, complicit in her exploitation and her victimization as the Dennis Hopper character. Yeah. These are like complicated ideas, you know? Neither film is suggesting <laughs> what's happening is good, but something good comes out of it at the same time. So what, what I think both of them are suggesting is that transgression has an id had not an id, has an ego annihilating quality right? Or superego annihilating quality. That's sort of the social rules that are in place. When you transgress them to destroy those rules, right? To pull them away, that that's what transgression is, that that's, that, that that's the quality of transgression, right? And so when you destroy those rules, you come out of something different on the other side of it. And Tsukamoto has a much more hopeful sense of like, you know, our love can destroy this fucking world, right? Like at the end of Tetsuo, like that if you transgress every rule that society has put up for you and you transgress every social moray and every, um, not even nicety, every rule that makes human beings function and protects us from the bad things swirling around inside of us, you will come out a different person when you embrace the repressed, buried things, when you become in touch with sensation, right? When you become in touch with your body again, right? When you reconnect with a world, he sees cities as being desensitizing, right? When you reconnect with sensuality and you're transgressive, you will come out of something different. And he's very hopeful in the sense of you can come out something better 
right? Like these 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 sort of um, ego annihilating qualities, these self annihilating qualities can leave you a changed person. And it's not, you're not necessarily going to be um, a damaged victim survivor of it. You can come out totally transformed. You know, I think that there is something um, very hopeful in his films uh, uh, as far as that. But I think he also is very honest about like, transgression is not friendly. This is something you see in a lot of modern sort of cinephiles relationship to transgressive art and transgressive material. If it's, if it doesn't unsettle you, if it just feels good, if it just makes you feel nice and tells you what you want to hear, which there are some bad rules and we break them and we feel better, right? That's not actually transgressive. That's affirmative. That's telling the audience what they want to hear, right? And, and it's, you know, it's near pornographic. The definition of pornography is anything that exists to satisfy its audience's pre-existing desires, right? Right. It's always kind of coming back to like that safety zone, that, that normal, the place of normalcy at the yeah. end of the film, which Sukumoto was interested in. Yeah, it's the quote unquote transgressive version of a safe zone. You know what I mean? It's this this movie might be very violent, but it's not going to challenge my moral philosophy and view of the world in any way. Sukamoto is very serious about if you are being really transgressive, it's got to be ugly and disturbing and undigestible and unintelligible and challenge our sense of what right and wrong is, of what up and down is, of the meaning of our desire. It's ironic. It's contrapuntal. It's difficult. It's difficult on purpose. And there's something incredibly um, true and admirable about that. But your transgression can't be, you know, uh, just can't tell you what you want to hear, right? Your transgression has got to challenge you. It's not really transgressing, transgression. So both as an artwork and what the characters go through, you know, the process of transgressing moral boundaries, like it's got to actually challenge your your, your morality. If, it, if the transgression if you're somebody who's who's very like a cab and a movie tells you all police should be killed, that's not actually transgressive. It'd be transgressive to somebody who would who doesn't want to hear that whatsoever. But if it's telling you what you want to hear, it's not actually transgressing your moral boundaries anyway. It's transgressing somebody else's. And I think he's very interested in transgressing his own moral boundaries and therefore his audiences. You know, I think he's interested in really pushing it again. I compare him to Wakamatsu a lot because I find Wakamatsu to be very paper thin in his transgressions. I find him to be telling his audience what they want to hear in some fundamental way. You know? And his film has this dual his films have this dual function as well, where when you talk about the Tokyo extremes, when you talk about someone like Mieke, you're seeing like a product of like a repressed cultural society where it's like, I'm striking back against it by making this as extremely insane and fucked up as possible and just like Every single like bit of the it is like coming out of me through this artwork. Sukumoto though has a commentary on that, which is like, what's my what what's my right to do that? You know, I mean, this film yeah. specifically, he you know cast himself very consciously as you know a person who frames a woman who makes her do things like he's directing her in a movie. The same like kind of relationship he would have with the lead actress Asuka Kurosawa. You it's know, about he's making him pointing these, a camera at her. Literally pointing a camera at her and being this like disembodied figure that we barely see who is constantly behind a lens or behind, you know, uh, or a voice through a phone, a, a, a presence that's constantly ominous, uh, ominously and um, can't think of the damn word. 
all anyway, all encompassing uh, throughout the the whole thing, while still being you know not yeah, the center, omnipresent sort omnipresent, of omnipresent. Yeah, yeah, directorial the way a director. He's like Francis Ford Coppola in his little booth directing one from the heart just as a disembodied voice. Right. It has that, that quality of character to it by him existing as a cell phone and a camera demanding things of people, yelling at Terry Gar, you know? Right. And 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 asking, you know, the viewer throughout the narrative, you know, what am I doing here? Like, what am I making this person go through? What am I making the audience watch? I mean, characters obviously stand in for for an audience literally at one point in the film. He's just constantly saying, you know, if I'm going to like have a reflection of this repressed society and I'm going to like do a full on, you know, out there and wild representation of it, like what's my role in that? You know, like what do I what do I have a right to be like to show this kind of thing? And his character gets increasingly, you know, uh, nervous and shy about doing it. As, he, as the film is going on. So it's like this amazing sort of like thing that's happening as the film is going. We're like seeing his actual thought process of like, what am I showing here? And do I have a right to show these things? Yes. He goes from feeling like, I don't care. I'm doing this because my desire tells me to do this. And I'm a weirdo pervert, so I can do this. To at the end, and I think this is where it's self-critique, being self-righteous about it. Being as opposed to that and that sort of arc of transgression of transgressive behavior as being a selfish expression to then fooling yourself into thinking your transgression is a is a righteous thing to do and a morally correct action. Right. And I think that's auto critique on him is that you can be transgressive and you can fool yourself into thinking you're doing something important or moral when actually you're just being the weirdo pervert you want to be and that's all it's an expression of i think there's i think that's again why this film feels like such a keystone and a lodestar is that it's so complex and auto critique you know yeah. and again if to compare to mulholland drive being about hollywood and acting and actors and performance again that's that sort of auto critique exists in it in the same way it's really a it's really uh, what am I doing here movie? But unlike a lot of those movies, you see sort of directors working through the like, I don't know what am I doing here? Am I an idiot? You know, he's thought about it very seriously and he comes in and doesn't seem a lot of times when directors make movies that are the like, what am I doing as a filmmaker movies? They feel very lost. You know, this he comes in with a plan and knowing that critique, it seems like they find out they're making that movie halfway through making it a lot of the time. The like, yeah, I'm yeah. lost. Whereas he comes in intent on making that that movie, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that, you know, everything on this is on purpose. Just look at like the visual motif of the circles, you know, opening up with the camera lens. And then that gets, you know, that becomes the drains, it becomes the, the, the window in the bathroom. It becomes the bullet hole at the end of the movie. And of course, the, yeah. the iris, you know, circle on the um, funnel mask that the audience wears. In that weird scene, and then the I washing just, machine uh, torture devices. It's yeah, the, yeah. The the well, all you can call it is the Cronenberg washing machine. I think. <laughs> Let's go through the plot because I'm betting 99% of the people listening haven't heard of this movie. Yeah, haven't me, even heard of this movie. I bet let me the take a stab at it. Haven't even heard of it. Okay, so it's uh, sectioned into three different parts. Each uh, uh, a gender symbol, right? It starts off with the female gender symbol, and the first part is uh, we meet. A woman, Rinko, who is a uh, works part time at a mental health center as a telephone counselor, and she lives with an older man who is not only older but like noticeably, uh, you know, physically 
Gross. Uh, contrast to her. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a big guy's ball. He's got glasses. Yeah. And if you see him in other stuff, he's played up to look, you know, he's not quite Jeffrey Tambor in Tales from the Crypt, but they're, they're taking a, <laughs> a man who's of moderate attractiveness and making him look as bad as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got like OCD. He's constantly cleaning the sink and the bathroom in their, their home and completely ignoring her. And they have no kind of intimacy. They don't even sleep together. He's constantly falling asleep in the living room on a chair uh, underneath this big plant. So one day she receives, well, she receives a series of packages in the mail from the same person. And the first one is candid pictures of her masturbating. The second series is her hemming a, a, a leather skirt that she has to be a mini skirt that rides above her knees. And the third one is uh, her looking at um, vibrators online and also uh, just some sensual pictures of her standing in the rain. This takes place in Tokyo in June where it's the rain season and there's just heavy rain constantly throughout the film. I mean, there's no no part in the film outside that does not have just a downpour of rain happening constantly. Yeah. Is it I, the rainiest film ever? Uh, yeah. I can't think of, like like Blade would... Runner would be like a bar second, I would say. <laughs> Yes, rainier so than Blade Runner. That's the Pink Smoke's official review for the block. Box or seven, box. you know, anything else I can think of that has a lot of rain in it. This one, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's Noah's Ark. Might as well be Seven Noah's Ark. Um, there's just water, 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 water everywhere. Is no it rainier than the Glimmer Man? <laughs> I don't know if there's much rain in the Glimmer Man. I have to re recheck. All I remember there's, is the there's glimmer. a lot of rain, and I only remember because it's set in Los Angeles, but it's like a seven ripoff. So it's like in rainy Los Angeles. <laughs> so there's gritty like, the alleys in the rain. About? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, it's rainier than any movie. It's the rainiest movie of all. Um, <laughs> and I, I love too that Tsukamoto has in an interview said, you know, he wanted to make this movie for more than a decade. And every, he'd say every time that June passed, he'd be like, oh, I missed my opportunity to make that movie again because he'd want to make it during, you know, in June. And that kind of gives me hope, like as like, someone who's constantly procrastinating and being like, oh, and, and has like seasonal deadlines and is like, Oh shit! Well, maybe next year I can get to that. I'll I'll do that in I'll do that Halloween thing I was going to do in October, you know. Um, anyway, so uh, Rinko's receiving these packages, and finally she is in contact with the person who's sending them, who tells her basically uh, she, she she realizes that it's a patient that she's been talking to on the phone who she has talked down from suicide, who is now uh, spying on her and sending her these messages. She had told him, uh, advised him, find out what you really want to do, which he keeps repeating to her. He says, I found out what I want to do. Now I'm going to let, let you do what you want to do. And so what he does basically is blackmail her with the negatives to say, I want you to go into public. I want you to wear this, walk around wearing this miniskirt and does a series of things that would be. I want you to express your repressed desire. I right. secretly saw this repressed desire. Express it now. And I'm going to right. force you to express it. Right. Um, and it's a series of increasingly, you know, uh, denigrating things. You know, first it's walking around in the skirt. Uh, and then she has to go out and actually purchase a vibrator. And then he actually goes so far as to say, uh, you know, insert the vibrator and he, and he holds the remote control. She goes out and buys fruit at a stand. Well, what fruit um, does she buy, John? It's not uh, fruit. It's one a, a cucumber, a banana, and an egg. A banana. One yeah. of each. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's obviously a very like difficult sequence, you know, she's put through this, but when she comes back to the bathroom, you can see that she is, uh, sexually excited by like what's gone on. Like, you know, that she actually has found something inside her that, that was for her exciting that she actually got off on it. Yeah. Uh, afterwards, after he's returned yeah, to the negatives. I just, yeah. I would just say with that moment, there's terror in her face 
but there's an incredible sheer release of emotion as well. It's very, it's filmed very, very interestingly. It's filmed mm -hmm. that she's both terrified of this and humiliated by it, but also releasing all of these emotions that she has no ability to express. Yeah, and, and the and the camera sympathizes with her specifically. I mean, yeah. when uh, after she's left alone, when he is, you know, hung up with her, and she is still, you know, using the vibrator the camera goes in and out of focus, you know, to kind of like show her sensations. It's an interestingly intimate moment where he has completely disappeared from it. And when we're alone with her, like she's become the movie, you know, like it's, it's, it's a very difficult sequence to get through. And I imagine most people would probably turn it off because of the agony she goes through for a good 10 minutes. But it, as you said, it is such an amazingly constructed scene and the outcome of it is, it, it earns it, you know, <laughs> like, like we believe that like she would be terrorized by this and later on when she goes out and is yeah. doing these things on her own and is more confident in what she's doing. You realize that this released repression has been good for her. Yeah. Yeah. Even but though it is sexual assault, unquestioned. But it's, but it's also annihilating for her. There's something to, to that. I don't want to jump over with this. There's a Catherine Brayot-esque quality to this film where you have something like fat girl and fat girls about this woman who wants nothing more than male sexual attention. She feels neglected by male sexual attention, by male desire. And when she gets it, what it ends up being is totally an annihilating force, right? It ends up being rape and murder. When she finally gets male attention, male attention is rape and murder, right? It's an annihilating force. And then in Last Woman, you have the same thing where sex is an annihilating force. When you're able to express your sexuality, finally, when Asi Argento is able to unrepress herself after the death of the her baby by the bonfire and, and release it, it's an annihilating force. It's not, it's not um, a wholesome force. You know what I mean? It's not like now you're a good person who's in touch with your desire. It's like a cleansing fire. And this movie, the same thing, it doesn't shy away from the fire aspects of it. It doesn't shy away from the from the transgressive aspects of it, that it's annihilating her, even as it's seeing the transgressive quality as releasing something vital and true inside of her. And it's and it just it doesn't shy away from it at all. It doesn't shy away from the bad aspects. It's not some bullshit like, you know, to, her, the young widow meets the cowboy who fucks her and now she's happy. You know, it's not that kind of a story. It's much right. more like she gets destroyed by this. You know, she gets completely set on fire by this. Who she is gets engulfed in flames. Right. But I guess the question is, you know, is that surface person that she is this uh, good person who, you know, helps a young boy, you know, who is suicidal and goes home and is a good wife to her husband is that who she really is? And like, is what's destroyed really worth saving in any way? You know, is it worth saving somebody who takes care of her mother-in-law and helps a young child from killing himself and works for a suicide hotline? <laughs> but I think he sets it up that way intentionally that she has some objective societal value that she contributes happiness and goodness to the world that's why she becomes the guy's target is is she saves him you know the exact line is you know i forget what she says but it's like why are you doing this to me why me and he says you made me want to live right mm -hmm. and i think that she's doing um 
something good. She's a good person in an objective way that he's trying to set up, that there's not that there's not any complexity to her beyond like sort of meek housewife and good person until we see all of these repressed things. You know, the Cronenbergian idea of repression is that everybody has all this repressed desire that's going to come out as as dysfunction, you know, as as mutation and disease and extra limbs and, you know, that kind of thing, you know, stomach vaginas is how all of this repressed stuff is going to come out in a Cronenberg movie, right? That it's the idea of, of Freud's civilization and its discontents, right? You have this idea that um, there's all of these human impulses that are untenable for society, right? If you're hungry and somebody has food, you kill them, right? This is an animal impulse. If there's a woman that's desirable to you and she doesn't want you, you rape her, right? These are the animal aspects of humanity, right? Somebody has something, I want it and take it. They annoy me, I stab them, right? Society is built around, that's all really bad. We can't live that way. That's morally objectionable. So we're going to put rules in place to repress all of those animal reactions and instincts and desire. We're going to build on top of the id, right? All of these rules, right? That stuff still is going to come out some way. And Cronenberg's idea is expressing the idea of like that stuff. Okay, how does it comes out? Let's literalize it. Let's turn these into to metaphors in some way. You know, let's let's make them. It comes out literally as you know, vomiting blood on your uh, vomiting your your fly vomit on the guy's hand. Right? You know what I mean? Like that's what you're gonna do. This is how it's gonna come out as these really acidically destructive forces. Sukamoto's working around the same sort of thing too except i think the the twist and sort of the level of complication that he has that a lot of people um don't other filmmakers that deal with this don't necessarily have is what if there's good things being repressed too what if there's important parts of us being repressed too what if there's true parts of ourselves being repressed as well right and on top of it what if the repressive structures are actually really really good and important you know i think that it's easy to be a like J.G. Ballard, like, the modern world is crushing me, so I've got to express what's being crushed by the modern world in some way, you know? And there's mm-hmm. definitely that to Tsukamoto, that cities are killing people. But he's also saying, well, what if the repressive structures lead you to work at a suicide call line, uh, suicide center hotline, you know, and you help people? What if the repressive structures are making your house orderly and clean instead of, like, a disgusting mess? Like, some of these things are actually good these repressive structures we need the repressive structures we can't get rid of the repressive structures but what's more important is the slug in the city right the like slimy slug that's like in this you know this immutable uh urban steel that's all around you that surrounds you and like completely chokes you and you know possibly gives you cancer you know there's that sort of like thought as well and the idea too is like this is a good person worth saving that there's something to save about her to like introduce this release of repression for her is in a way also like making her realize that she needs to take care of herself as much as she takes care of other people that she's taking care of the mother-in-law and the husband and the people on the suicide lines. It's like, take a care about yourself. What do you really want? What like are the things that would make you feel healthy? And that this leads specifically to him, like realizing that she has breast cancer and needs to do something to, to save her literally to save her life. Which, you know, is against the kind of rigid structure of this society and against her, like, you know, clean freak husband's ideals of like what perfection is. It's not like 
do something for yourself. It's do something to make me happy. I don't want you to not have a breast anymore. Like that's not acceptable to me is sort of the thing that it's like, that's the kind of structure and the kind of society that he's kind of kicking back against in this movie. So we'll get to take us through the plot more. We're just through the first section. One thing I got to say too, it's three sections. I love how imbalanced they are. The first section, which is the female symbol is 40 minutes. The second section, which is the male symbol is less than 15. And then the third section, which we'll get to the symbol of it is uh, 27 minutes. So take us, take us through more of the plot, but I love how it doesn't have any concern for making these perfectly balanced between each other, that she's a more complex character and what she's going through is more complex. He's a little bit simpler. The, the diagnosis of him, you know, there's not as many therapy sessions needed to diagnose this character. There's less minutes of screen time, but yeah. Right. The male. So the next is the male section where, uh, the Sukumoto character, whose name is, uh, Iguchi, uh, and we learn is dying of stomach cancer, right? To the point that he like has long stretches where he is almost completely immobile due to like the agonizing pain of his disease. And uh, that's why he was contemplating suicide in the first place is that, you know, he, uh, you know, he just living for him is just completely impossible. He's become almost inhuman in you know, his functions mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, but he learns that she, he learns from taking pictures of her that she has, breast cancer and insists that she go and gets gets diagnosed and be treated for it but when her husband responds negatively to the idea of her having a mastectomy he turns his focus on the husband uh first um he he when the husband uh, can't go to be with his mother when she's dying when he decides to just you know go off to a diner somewhere he starts spying on him and realizing like that's his secret that's her husband's secret is that like he is completely avoiding any kind of like emotional contact or involvement with the lives of like the people around him. And um, so he starts phoning the husband and um, at one point kidnaps the husband and takes him to. Yeah. What's the cure for his avoidance of emotionality? What's the cure? And it's very simple. I mean, you're watching the movie, you know where it's going with this. Yeah. To take, to take him to (laughs) some kind of a uh, secret club where businessmen are uh, fitted with, funnel-like mask and watch these uh, crazy, violent, sexual uh, performances being done. You know, a man and a woman being uh, violently forced sexually on each other and then put in the Cronenberg washing machine to be drowned. Um, And that's, you know, I think that's a pretty good cure for most people. (laughs) And he's forced and humiliated. He's tied up. He doesn't want to be there. You know, it's not something that he willingly goes to. It's it's a it's a violent kidnapping scene to go to the I don't even know the the underground sex show snuff film live performance. And I love that, you know, these things aren't explored explicitly, but that the um, that Aguchi has like this relationship with like the the pornography ring of Tokyo that like, you know, at the beginning we see him, well, yeah. you know, cause he takes, he takes pictures of dildos essentially, right. The, for right. this uh, snuff magazine. And then the, he also has some kind of connection to like an underground sex ring. This scene is so weird and so unexpected and so surprising. I hate describing it in concrete terms. Yeah. It feels, it feels again to compare him to Lynch. It, it feels like, if you try and describe what's happening in concrete terms in a Lynch film, a lot of the time it sounds fucking stupid. 
you know, and it's better to allow it as a dream space and let the dream space wash over you. It's the same thing, same thing with this. Yeah. You know, it's funny. There's when I made my notes because we keep bringing up Lynch. There were so many comparisons that I was noticing this time for it. Uh, you know, that the opening begins with the same camera sound and flashes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He takes a photo of a hot plate early on that resembles the, the Hollis Frampton film. Nostalgia. Burning yeah. of a hot plate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nostalgia. I just didn't, I didn't know if people would recognize the name. No, I'm just saying I, I had um, made the same connection. Yeah. Yeah. He has the woman in the sex shop making everybody uncomfortable, which reminded me of the piano teacher, even though it uh, uh, predates it. You know, there's the slugs, the obsession with slugs. That's like Diary of a Chambermaid and Deep Water, right? And just to jump in real quick, I'm sorry, but, you know, yeah. you mentioned the, the piano teacher. I'm glad that there's that small moment, too, where she's on the very crowded subway and something happens with the guy in front of her. He clearly touches her or something and she slaps him. I like that that's a moment that kind of is Tsukamoto saying, this woman's not a deviant. She's not like out there just hoping like to get groped by people, you know, she's not going to go into like a porno theater and sniff the uh, used tissues the way that Isabel uh, Huppert would do in the piano teacher. Like what she has is something that's very private, very intimate, you know, but it's like, it's hers. It's not something that like she wants to like be out yeah. in the world, you know, and she lives in a world that's constantly trying to degrade and humiliate her. Yes. Her existence. Part of the reason it's repressed is because the world is gross. Right. Yeah, That's part yeah. of the reason it's repressed. When he talks about Tsukamoto talks a lot about cities being desensitizing. Right. And that you what's happening in Tetsuo is you're losing your sense of self, your sense, literal sensation, your sensuality. You're losing that by living in a city and you're becoming mechanical. You're becoming connected to technology. And he said the reason he wants to make this movie rainy is when you're in a city you can't, when it starts raining, you get in touch with your sensation again because it's gross, right? You feel the <laughs> sensation of rain on you. You see the gutter and the trash. It's really sort of like you can't avoid the sensation, right? You're put back into your own body. You get undesensitized, right? And that that happens every June when it's humid and rainy and all that. You feel the sensation of self more intensely in those moments, right? That that's what's happening to you. So that's why it makes it so rainy. Right. And so she can't keep repressing this stuff that probably is reasonable to be repressed because it's getting so rainy. She's getting to in touch with herself in a gross public train station bathroom. You know, what could be more disgusting than a train station bathroom on a rainy day? You know, <laughs> yeah. that, kind of thing. that but, um, rusty fan going behind her. Yeah, it's yeah. gross. But it's but funny that, thinking, you know, of course, yeah, so go ahead. Pardon. No, just with the other comparisons, just to get through of all the slugs that reminded me of Diary of a Chambermaid by Boonwell, who's another filmmaker who has no one great film whose films are a house, right? Mm -hmm. And Deep Water, the, the Patricia Highsmith, is she owns slugs. If you show a slug in a movie, I'm going to think of, of Patricia Highsmith, slugs in narrative art. Um, and then the hamster wheel, right? Where she gets the hamster, he... The, the stalker sends her a hamster after realizing she wants a pet and the hu husband doesn't want it. But the hamster wheel reminds me so much of the opening shots of Intentions to Murder, the Shohei uh, Imamura movie, right? That it's just so similar sort of domesticity and hamster wheel being drawn between it. And then the constant... You could write a, you could write a book comparing Imamura and Tsukamoto, yeah, in my the opinion. the constant gushing yeah. of gutters and mm -hmm. the relationship of the release of water. It's so warm water under a red bridge. Yeah. Right? It's so related to that. But when you read interviews with them, he doesn't mention any of these people. He doesn't mention David Lynch that much in interviews. The person he mentions over and over, which really shocks me, is, and until you think about it and you look at his career, 
is um Kani Chikawa. This uh-huh. is like the guy for him, you know, that like killing is is inspired and based on the wanderers in a roundabout way. He remakes Fire on the Plains, although he says the novel was the bigger inspiration than the movie. You know, he's just got a lot of Connie Chikawa in him. And I find that a very shocking comparison because I think whatever the opposite of transgression is, that's Connie Chikawa. Connie Chikawa is sort of affirmative of moral boundaries, not in a square stayed dumb way, not in a moralistic way. But Connie Chikawa has a lot of like the world needs to be this way in order to function. You know, that that's that's sort of a running theme through it. And I think for that's what ends up leavening a bunch of movies like this is that it's not there's an amount of like. If you release the love of Tetsuo, your love will destroy the fucking world. Do you want the world destroyed? You know, and it's Mm -hmm. easy to say yes. Ha ha ha. But I think Tsukamoto goes, do you? Do you want the world <laughs> destroyed? You know, do you want to be so consumed by your desire? Now your husband desires you that you don't want to get rid of your breast because now you're in touch with your desire and you're literally willing to die for this desire that you've stoked. You're willing to die to for your repressed id. You're willing to let it consume you, to let your body consume you in a literal way. Is that a good thing? You yeah. know, or should you, or should you just, you know, get the mastectomy and communicate with your husband better? You know, (laughs) one one thing that really strikes me visually happens early in the movie, which is when she's at the call center and a woman comes to see her. And there's this really crazy few seconds where like there's this shot of this really scary looking woman. She looks like a yokai from a J horror or something like, (laughs) is that person really there even? Um, And both and she's nervous and the the guy next to her is nervous that she's there to do something bad. And then she it turns out she's there to, to thank her for helping her son, counseling her son. It's such a weird moment. Every time I've seen this movie a lot and every time that happens, I don't know what to think of it. It's so weird. And I guess it kind of comes up later when in the third part of the uh, film, when she, like you said, she's kind of destroyed what she was and she's and and the final third of the film becomes almost completely um, erratic, you know, I mean, almost kind of, uh, is a reflection of like his, you know, breaking down, dying of cancer, obviously, but like even more so it's like her life just seems completely unfocused at this point. And we really don't know what's going on with her. Yeah. And it makes me think like she previously, you know, thought of everything she was doing as instantly like harmful or bad the way like this woman like makes her feel scared and nervous, but it turns out it's good. Like it's part of like what she's doing in society. That's actually good. But like now that she's like, not afraid that she's not like a a mousy personality that she's not a wallflower and she has completely like come to herself in this way like like you said is it a good thing that she's reached this that she's not intimidated anymore you would think it would be like a positive thing but like her life is completely out of focus at this point well what i think is happening with that woman who's like hollowed out like a ghost at the beginning is you get a sense that her job is touching the void you know that she's meeting these hollowed out emotionally racked people who are on the verge of suicide and she's able to keep it at bay right like there's a difference like you know this is what somebody who lives in the void looks like right they look like a ghost on earth right Mm -hmm. and then she finds herself in there when she sees them and they look happy later on she's hiding behind her glasses they don't even recognize her because she's inside the void now you know and it's and it's definitely a question of like 
you know, to, to touch the void, to transgress, to feel the call of the void and jump is not as simple as like, that's awesome. Do it. You know, like it's mm-hmm. not as simple as like, you're super horny, get fucking like, that's not actually how it works. That's not actually the simplicity of life. It's much more complicated than that. It's much more dangerous than that. It's much more ugly than that. A lot of the time. What's mm-hmm. the, what's the third section, just so we can get through the, the plot of the movie. So the third what's section the symbol, now? how would you describe the symbol that adorns this section? A combination of the male and female gender symbol, you know, which, you know, he said in many interviews is kind of his idea, this movie of like, you know, making the male and the female, uh, anatomy completely indiscernible from each other uh, but then it adds a, in some way it adds a third male symbol sort of flipped 90 degrees to so the, the yeah the two men the, combined the with the one woman so it looks like a little demon horn thing you know yeah. it looks it looks <laughs> like this inhuman male female you know like a lot of mythological creatures that are sort of trickster figures that have both male and female qualities to them you know those sort of it's very it's a great little symbol i love it <laughs> and i imagine there are some extreme sukimoto fans who probably have a tattoo of that symbol <laughs> uh yeah so the husband has now become aware of what's happened what uh of uh iguchi's involvement with his wife and the pictures that he's taken so he follows her uh when she is she's talked to him on the phone she's talked to iguchi on the phone and said you need to do me a favor and the husband follows her to this favor which is that she comes out in the pouring rain um strips and um she's using the vibrator and uh from his car gucci is taking photographs of her using the the same camera from the beginning of the movie the giant camera with a long with a loud flash which you know the pornographer has suggested is the best way to like get a girl off um so he's taking these pictures of her and the husband's watching and the husband is is uh also getting off watching this and he sees when she strips that she's not had the surgery and becomes concerned. And then after her moment of sensuality, there's this very intimate moment where, you know, she's just standing there letting the rain fall over her naked body. And he takes like a much smaller camera to take pictures of her, which will obviously become like meaningful, you know, photos for both of them, you know, like the most, like, have I like, have we found a middle ground here? Have we like pushed through <laughs> The one extreme, which is like you're a good person who's beneficial to society and doing everything that's expected of you and helping other people. And the other side, which is, you know, creepy business guys with these masks watching horrible things happen. Like, have we found somewhere in between there? Is this like the moment like of of transcendence for you? (laughs) You Have you found a balance between suicide hotline worker and society for creepy murder perverts <laughs> exactly. found... have i sukamoto found that moment you yeah. know? uh it's great and then um the final thing is the husband gets a gun and is going to do something extreme at the same time that sukamoto is kind of uh gucci is kind of fading out of like existence and he takes a pinhole camera image of himself uh which is a very poignant kind of moment where he takes one picture where he's sitting there in his apartment and one where he is absent and kind of compares the two images to each other, which really to me makes this final disoriented uh, act of the movie work because it's not just saying like, here's me when I exist and here's me when I don't exist, which has been his preoccupation the whole time. But like, what about this character existing and not existing in in like these people's lives? This final moment where the husband comes in and thinks he sees Iguchi and fires at him through his own suit. Yeah. And then he's not there. And then he's completely absent from like the big climax of the movie. It's uh, you know, this is obviously kind of a play on the old uh, 
interloper melodrama of like yeah. Teorema or uh, yeah. uh, Visitor Q, the Miyake movie. Knife in the Water. Sort or of. even uh, Tokyo Fist, you know, a Sukumoto's yeah. own movie. Um, so it's kind of a play on that. So the idea that like, what happens when this guy is no longer part of your lives? Like, where do you go from there? And it becomes the big ending of this movie, this kind of surreal ending of the film. Uh, so it's difficult to describe plot wise. Like if I'm talking about just on surface, it seems like the husband shoots the shoots his suit yeah. thinking it's, it's a Gucci, uh, which is a release of some sort for him. And he and the wife are finally intimate in the final scene of the movie. But there's also this kind of horrible moment where he sees that she has had the surgery, had the breast surgery, and that it's beautiful. Like he has no problem with it actually. But then he looks and she actually has not had the surgery and she is complete, but doomed. Right. So we kind of get this ambiguous what's like what's moving forward, what moving forward is like the fate of these people. Yeah. And that's how it ends with this like, you, you know. Also, you left scene. you jumped over the best scene in the movie. Did I jump over the best scene? What? Where he takes him to the warehouse, the husband. Oh, I completely <laughs> I only forgot the uh giant uh railing penis that comes out whatever that thing is what is your interpretation well it's another thing where it's like i don't even want to talk about what's supposed to be happening in that scene i don't want concrete and definite ideas of it he reveals himself seemingly to be some sort of supernatural machine man not even machine just like so i i just don't even want to describe it there's a great scene where the where the husband comes to see the the stalker again and he sort of beats him up in a warehouse and covers him with muck oil i don't even know what's supposed to be <laughs> happening there and reveals himself to be beyond human and he's got some way. kind Maybe. of a, yeah. a thing around his stomach that suggests <laughs> that like i it's some extreme you Is know treatment for the cancer yeah. or the cancer manifesting itself it's like yeah it's yeah, obviously incredibly cronenbergian yeah, but even but Sukamoto in interview says, "I don't really know what to think about that." Scene. Yeah, it's. I'd say that it's not actually Cronenbergian. It's very Sukamotoian. Sure, sure. Very, sure. very original. It doesn't feel like you're watching anybody else. It feels like this only came from him because it's more violent and crueler and more self righteous. Cronenberg doesn't get hot with his emotions, right? He he, he stays very cool most of the time. You know, and this gets very hot. This is like a scene out of Tokyo Fist or, or Bullet Ballet. Like this is like this is like a very hot scene. It's coming in hot. It's coming in jittery. It's coming in erratic. Mm -hmm. You know, it's coming in overly emotional and melodramatic. You know. Well, if there's any Cronenberg scene to compare it to, it would be the one in Naked Lunch, where uh, makes me sad just to bring up Julian Sands anymore. Julian uh, Sands, you know, is uh, mutated into some kind of giant insect, and you know is having some kind of a fusion with uh, this <laughs> this guy that he is making love with, uh, which is, you know, horrific and beautiful at the same time. And she's like, why this scene make, makes me feel is Cronenbergian, horrific and beautiful at the same time. Yeah. But what does it mean? Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's it's a fusing of some kind between the two talk, men. I, I genuinely don't want to talk about it. I okay, yeah, I mean that's probably why I, I I passed over it. I wanted subconsciously to didn't want to like dream have to engage space. With it. I really I really do in some some fundamental way. You know what moment? Just to jump around a little bit. This time watching it really struck me as when she gets the box with the hamster in it uh -huh. right, from the yeah. stalker. 
when she goes to open it, because it's Sukamoto, I forgot all about this. And I was like, oh, geez, what is this going to be? What is going to happen right here? Because I, it can just be anything. And then when it's a little creature, you're not like, oh, that's cute. You're like, where is this going? Oh, that's right. <laughs> it's the hamster. But it's it's definitely a terrible, because it's Sukamoto. It could, it could be anything. Yeah. It could be anything in the universe yeah. coming out of that little box. It's like it's, it's like Spank Meyer's Punch and Judy, where there's a guinea pig hanging around and you're like, oh God, no, please no. And then nothing happens to it. <laughs> it's somehow worse that it's there. Anyway. No, I there's it's funny. There's a moment that I I watched this film three times in the last week. It's just such a like start it right over again kind of movie, really yeah. is. Uh there's a moment I never understand clearly. I think I get it now, but like it's right after she gets the hamster and then the husband uh, and then they talk about the breast cancer and then the husband screams and she walks, goes into the bathroom and he's like pulling up a drain that has all this muck inside of it. Yeah. And, uh, and as he's like, and as he's freaking out over this muck, he says, he says like, why did you tell me you got the hamster? You know? And so I was always like, did he flush the hamster down the toilet? And now this is like, it's furry remains have clogged up. Is that what it is? Because why does he bring up the hamster? You know, I I bring it up because I, on on the D on the, on the Blu-ray that I have, I was like, I'm going to listen to the audio commentary from the scene. This guy's going to explain it to me. And the guy doing the audio commentary is like, you know that the characters are never in the same shot at the same time. Well, well in in this shot, they are. (laughs) <laughs> but there are certain parts where they are. It's like, you son of a bitch, you're not going to explain anything to me. Just, just talk about how it looks like he's pulling the girl from the grudge by her hair out of the drain. What's yeah, yeah. Here? Tell me Is what's it the month that he get, like, gets splattered on him later in the movie? I don't know, you know. But, <laughs> but I think it's just like supposed to be enough because in the very next moment she's... Where I'm like, I hope they talk about the bear blowjob costume and not a single yeah. mentions it. It's like, yeah. this is the only thing I wanted to hear about this whole movie. <laughs> exactly. But it's obviously not that because he, he she takes the hamster to the mother's hospital mm-hmm. room in the very next scene. Yeah. Um, that's the saddest moment in, for me in the movie is when she's that, that gorgeous shot where she's visiting the mother and uh, you see the <laughs> rain reflecting on the room? walls. I think the mom lives in a little dome building out back. I think she's like in home convalescence because okay. the boys in the trucks watching it this time. There's like a little I was going to ask you that she there's one shot where she like approaches a geodesic dome looking thing that seems to be in their backyard and it seems to be the mom's houses that where the mom was because all of the cars are there the yeah yeah well that's what i was going to say the saddest thing is that line of cars by the window where oh she's having this God. you know moment where she's clearly confused and she says like you know he wants me uh what's the husband's names she uh Shigiko, like wants me to buy him a car but i just bought him a car and there's yeah. just this line of like toy cars and trucks next to the window like this like sad like collection of cars they were like such great poetry to this movie like in such a shots of this movie which you know the first image i ever saw before i saw this film was obviously the you know the guys with the masks yeah and the creepy sex scene and it's you know one of those things where you're like oh yeah that movie is crazy and extreme and it's like no it's filled with moments like this with these toy cars that get lined up against the window like there's a lot of beautiful images her in so the bathtub cool. with the you know the, the circular window looking up at the rain there's just so much beauty to this the rain on the hydrangeas that it keeps cutting to you know there is the drains the waters the transom the dew the condensation her shower sweat the rain on the skylight there's just so many beautiful images of water in this movie and i know again not to keep bringing back to lynch you're obsessed with water imagery and the date films of david lynch you know yeah. 
that same sort of quality where there's something cleansing and filthy about city rain that I think he's getting at too, that you don't see city rain and say, Oh, I wish I was in that. You feel like gross in it. It's her in the junkyard taking her clothes off in the rain. It's her in a train station bathroom. It's gutters and transoms full of filth, you know, that, it, that it's this cleansing thing. That's also really, uh, that's also really gross. It's also there's there's a lot of oh, when he when he passes out next to the, the the trash cans, the husband. I'm like, oh, oh god. god, with his face down in what it. What a nightmare! Oh my god, <laughs> just think about. I just remember I, when you ask actors to do stuff like that. It's like, does Sukamoto just like okay and just drop your face in the garbage, just drop it <laughs> into the garbage, this filthy wet garbage, and this is like disgusting alley. Just, yeah, these, just do it. These Japanese actors, like the guy in audition, like yeah. have her actually vomit so I can eat it. You know, like, God, <laughs> you guys don't have to do this. You know that, right? Or Sukamoto bringing the the bucket of jizz for the opening credits of Ishii the Killer, <laughs> right? Where Miyake's like, I want the opening credits to be done in jism, but I don't know where I'm going to get enough. And Sukamoto being like, I'll get you jism. I can get you. I can get you. Some. And just showing up with a bucket <laughs> of jism like a week later. Oh um, my god. It should be pointed out too. We haven't talked about it much. Sukamoto like does it all. Like he writes, shoots, edits, directs, does all of this. These are like one man band productions. And that's something as a filmmaker, I'm very inspired by is that I think that there's a quality to his films that can only, this movie can only be made because it's him making them. And there's nothing standing between him and the making of it. There's no crew standing between him and his artwork you know and i think that directness and urgency of it really is palpable i believe in that herzogian idea of everything that's on set shows up in the image somehow you know mm -hmm. that and that's really true with this that it's just like this is a man with a camera doing this you know and there's times in his movies like as much as like i admire fires on the plane or I'm glad it exists. Like it looks like a trauma movie at times. Like it looks like so wildly underfunded that you almost feel bad for it. You know, when he's in these super intimate spaces, this, um, uh, what's the one with the woman and the baby called? Uh, Toko. I was going to call it Kotaku. Uh, when this one, <laughs> you go for uh, Kotaku. Uh, this one, Kotoko, uh, the Tetsuo, when he does these killing, even the killing is very, not the killing, killing is very, very intimate. When he does these super duper intimate movies, it's really, really powerful. They do feel like the expression of him. They feel like the expression of this sort of like uh, diseased mind that's being very honest with itself, you know? And there's just such an urgency to it by him being the guy doing it. It's happening because he did it. You know, it has that that feeling to it. It doesn't feel both ballet, Tokyo Fist have the same quality to them of just this is the guy making it. And I think this is the apex of what a one man feature film can be. You know what yeah, I mean? Although not to ignore his excellent collaborators in this. I mean, Chewie Shikawa's music in this is yeah. amazing. But well, you're right. Except, except on the scene, the murder pervert society scene, it's like charles band level terrible fake orchestral sense every time that scene comes on and it sounds like a, a you know a 
demonic toys versus the puppet master movie <laughs> it's just like can't they have redone this but then there's the beautiful choral music at the end and it, it is the music is great throughout it's just that one moment where it's just like you can picture what i'm saying it's a full moon video soundtrack for, <laughs> for 30 sure, seconds sure. but but yeah we haven't mentioned how this is shot and like uh, this beautiful blue uh chromium black and white that's unlike any other yeah, film i've never seen a film called, that looks like this it gets called black and white which i'm always like this movie is black and blue very clearly yeah. you know right. like those are the colors of it there's no pure white the white is blue tinted throughout even right. through it so but he didn't shoot it in black black and blue obviously that yeah. was done uh you know post-conversion but like it's just uh, such a unique and singular look this film is another reason like it's easy to like revisit it all the time is just because you just like love being in this beautiful looking world yeah and a lot of times when images are gorgeous they feel constructed they feel like an aesthetic that's been put in place in order to look beautiful right they they feel constructed i don't want to say phony and false but a lot of beautiful images are insincere feeling to me the beauty of this movie is very intimate and offhanded. It's an incredibly beautiful looking movie that feels almost like found footage that almost feels like a documentary. And that's one of the really remarkable things about it as well is that um, it doesn't feel like he's constructed a beautiful image. It feels like he's constantly finding beautiful images, which gives it a real intimacy. Yeah. And it's imagery specifically that works moving you know yeah. it's not like a one perfect shot sort of thing where like you can take beautiful stills from this movie it's like well they're they're okay but like yeah. it really works in like this in the movement of this film you know yeah and the moving the rhythms with the editing too mm -hmm. not just the physical movement of the camera but like the editing's the rhythm of the editing as well you're absolutely right yeah absolutely uh i mean this is a great film what else is there to say i, I think that you know <laughs> Uh, we promised for this episode to be shorter than the movie itself so we're gonna wrap it up soon we are and it's a very short movie it's an impossibly short movie for all the things that like it, it crams into it because i feel like we could we could talk for another hour about this film there really is so much to digest yeah and it's it's just an absolute we haven't talked much great, about the performers film. the all three of them are phenomenal in it all Amazing. three of them give you know i think the mvp is obviously asuki kurosawa on it that she really gets it's a show off piece and she gets to to show off. She gets to really uh, play an incredible complexity and range and she's up to the task and she's somebody I'm not familiar with. I don't know, really know her other work. She yeah, was she's the serial, she's the serial killer wife from cold fish, but that's all I, I remember. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that she's great in that too. She's amazing. In that. I saw an interview with her where she was talking about how her dream role was to do uh, Tammy and wild Daisy is like what huh? because it was connected <laughs> to this like i always wanted to do a role like tammy and wild daisy and never got that opportunity so i did this movie and i was like mm -hmm. wait what <laughs> like what i don't understand i what i can't follow it but she had a um she was licensed to be like a home helper like medical psychological care for people before she did this movie like i guess her acting oh, career wow. was not um uh where she wanted it to be so she was going to like do good become like a do-gooder and she said that she thinks that's why she got cast is because um when she was being auditioned by sukamoto she knew how to affect those behaviors and tones 
and language and put that on the way you're trained to do and that it felt very natural to her. And so she could switch it on and off very quickly. And that that apparently is what caused him to to cast her. She's fantastic. And Sukumoto as an actor, it's funny, we were just talking with our friend Anthony King. I brought up uh, another uh, Japanese extreme, you know, filmmaker, which is beat Takeshi, Kateshi Kitano. And I I mentioned like, I like him better as a performer than as a filmmaker. (laughs) And I think that's because he's a he really is a great actor. And uh, and he films himself just fine. You know, like those films are just (laughs) fine. Where Sukumoto obviously is invested in every single angle of the art. So not only is he like, uh, just an amazing artist, but like he knows how to use himself as an actor in amazing ways. Yeah. And, uh, and really like become part of the entire filming process. And as we've already said, this is specifically a film about, you know, how he feels making <laughs> these kind of movies, you know, and what really Imagine struggling to like make yeah. coherent things that should be completely incoherent. Yeah. And he's asking himself, what's the difference between what I do and pornography? What's the difference between what I do and exploitation, right? What's the difference between what I do and the cheap, crassest versions of this stuff? You know, that it's a self-interrogation in that way, in a very uh, concrete way um, and very intelligent and sophisticated way. Yeah, and even like struggling you with himself why, as a performer, he punches himself. Yeah, why Scorsese loves this dude? Yeah, he punches he punches the mirror, his own self reflection in this film. Yeah. You can't get more like you know. <laughs> I'm gonna if if I'm the least exploited in this movie compared yeah. to my other films where he's always the most exploited, <laughs> like I am going to like just punch myself in this scene. <laughs> and it is fascinating too because. Um, as much as I like them, the early works that follow Tetsuo, like Tetsuo, I think Eraserhead, I think that's a great one-to-one, just like, let me pull open my brain and just pour the contents out on the ground and you get all to look at it. And it's just an announcement like, Hey, here's something, here's somebody fucking crazy. Here they are. Right. Like drill in your skull and pour the goop inside out. And everybody goes, ah, right. Like (laughs) that's what those movies are. Um, bullet ballet in tokyo fist that sort of follow and even tetsuo 2 it starts to get there they're very unreflective movies right they're movies that don't reflect on themselves they're more of him being like this is what i do so i'm going to continue doing it this movie feels like a real turning point where he becomes very reflective about his style and his process and his place in the world and what he's doing it again that's why it feels like a keystone is it's sort of the arch of his career on one half, you have the Tetsuo and Sons of Tetsuo. And on the other side, you have the more sort of fire on the plane killing type of uh, Kotoko, more serious, quote unquote, serious movies. Well, more mature, more sophisticated. I do think the second half is more sophisticated than the first. And this is like the thing holding them in place. This is the keystone keeping that arch from falling in on itself. I will say Tokyo Fist is a really nice guest room though. I really love (laughs) that one. And (laughs) But but you can see where he's trying to figure it out in Tokyo Fist, whereas it's with a snake in June, it's like he's figured it out. There yeah. are all those shots. There's that montage in Tokyo Fist of his character walking around the city, being completely dwarfed by the gigantic buildings, you know, being stuck in the alleys and everything like that. It's a very like superficial kind of way of just being like how this character feels. And in this one, the character, uh, the city itself is like, it just is what it is. You know, yeah. you just kind of like get it without any like very specific shots of like, these characters feeling so small. It just, it's just, <laughs> it's in the way it's shot. It's in the blue and white, the black and blue, you know, it's just like, yeah. it's part, 
it's something like it's connecting this 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 environment to these characters in a way that's both repressive and potentially liberating. So yeah. I think he's got it really figured out by the time he comes to this movie and then moving forward, he's he's himself, he's Sukamoto officially, you know. One thousand percent. I think that's a great note to end it on. I think that that's a really uh, apt observation. Thanks for talking about the movie with me, John. Thanks, thanks. I was worried, but I think uh, I think we nailed. It. I think it's a good one. I think it's great, and it's I do. A fun one to talk about. <laughs> <laughs>